This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Mark Amtower of Amtower and Company, which is entirely responsible for its content. This is Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Every week, author, speaker, consultant Mark Amtower gives you his take on what's going on in the world of federal marketing. Now, your host, Mark Amtower. Welcome to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here today with return guest Amber Hart of the Pulse of GovCon. Uh, Amber, welcome back. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, and and frankly, it's been too long, and I think I want you on a little more regularly, so uh, stay tuned for that, either you or your partner, Lisa. So um, the Pulse of GovCon, uh, number one, introduce yourself, background, and then tell us a little bit about the Pulse. Sure. Uh, So my name is Amber Hart, and I am the co-founder and co-owner of the Pulse of GovCon, as Mark mentioned, I say co-founder. Um, Lisa Shaymunt is the other co-owner and co-founder. Um, a little bit about me is I have been working in government contracting for about, oh my God, 11 years now, maybe a little bit more than that. Um, and uh, I've supported businesses, small, large, medium, um, supporting the entire BD and growth life cycle. Um, including even kind of operational support post-win. So things like the, like going after bids, knocking on doors, walking the halls, cold calling, cold emailing, being ignored by contracting officers for months on end, um, all of that fun stuff, hunting, um, you know, opportunities down to writing and executing and strategizing the proposal, teaming agreements, all of that fun stuff. I've even done a little recruiting um, down to kind of operational and deployment support. Uh, I've been really lucky where I've worked at a variety of companies in the industry that do many different things. And I've kind of been thrown into the deep end each and every time, which has allowed me to really learn on the job, which has been really helpful. And so about four, almost four years ago, so in 2017, um, Lisa and I decided, hey, why not try something new Um, and really kind of kicked it into high gear and started the Pulse of GovCon. And truthfully, if you would have told me, you know, almost four years ago, if that we'd be having a business, I would have laughed at you because we were in full-time jobs when we started the Pulse, working somewhere else and really the Pulse was just supposed to be an anonymous blog to kind of put our thoughts and opinions out there on government contracting. Because if you know anything about Lisa or I, is that we're not short on opinions of things. That's what's fun about talking to you. <laughs> and uh, we just needed somewhere to put them outside of the war room, right? The, you know, we kind of lived there. And so we, we started an anonymous blog. And truthfully, the only reason the Pulse of GovCon was made into an LLC was so if we said something that someone didn't like, they couldn't come after Lisa's house. I don't, I don't own a home. So Lisa was really the one more at risk than, than I was. So we kind of created an LLC to protect ourselves. And truthfully, the, the blog took off um, more than we ever thought it would. We just thought like families and friends would read it. And then, you know, that would kind of be the end of that. And it just has snowballed 
over the past four years where we are a living, breathing, you know, company and it's crazy. Well, you know, it's crazy good, I hope. Yes, it's absolutely um, crazy good. You know, wouldn't uh, change the path for the world and it's really exciting and it's exhausting, um, but it's it's exhilarating. It's really fun. Well, that would be good because, uh, you know, I want you to hang around and do it for a lot longer. Um, Me and you because, both. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, I think, you know, you, you picked a good partner or she picked a good partner. Or you we both pick each pick other is what we like to say. Yeah, but you, you and you and I have had this discussion briefly a couple of times. But explain why you really wanted to start this part of the business, not the blog. Yeah, sure. So as I mentioned, I started in this industry about you know eleven years ago, and I started out as an intern at SAIC uh, back in the Mebu days near the Roger Bacon, the Taco Bell, KFC. If anyone listening knows what I'm talking about, you know the building I'm referring to. Um, and I was an intern there. I worked under two fabulous uh, directors. They're both still in industry. They were amazing. Um, but getting into government contracting, as we all know, and I have experienced is really confusing. I, I mean, I even grew up in this area and have family that worked on the government side. But if you're in government contracting, learning all the acronyms, what you're doing, what's the purpose, right? Why, why am I doing this was really never explained to me, right? You just kind of get thrown into it. And you're like, what's a white paper? What's a RFP? Why am I writing a 25 page proposal that's due in two days? You know, all of these things of why is this happening? I never really got answers to. And I think as I went throughout my career, you know, you kind of pick up tidbits here and here, but there was really never, I mean, I went, I got sent to the training courses. I got sent to the Shipley classes. None of it ever really resonated with me. And, you know, so you go apart because you have a job and I, and I was enjoying it, but uh, you know, met Lisa had, you know, as an intern at another company that we were at and got really, you know, noticed from there, even throughout our careers, you know, that no one really explains this stuff, right? It's it's all Greek. It's all very cloak and dagger. It's all very hidden. And there's really no plain speak about the industry, even in academia, you know, just now, are we starting to really have government contracting be a case study, right? Or be a school of thought, which is insanity because it's the largest job provider in this country. And especially in the Northern Virginia area, right? I think it makes up about 78% of the GDP. And it's crazy to me that it's taken this long for us to, to plainly speak about it. But it was really that of what really kind of pushed us to create the pulse is because at the end of the day, we wanted to create what we wish we would have had when we started an industry and what the tools, the plain speak, the resources that we even needed throughout our careers. And that really prompted us to start the pulse. Cool. So um, what, what do you guys offer? You, you, you do some consulting, but you have a database and you produce these really cool reports. 
Yeah. So we do a bunch of different stuff, uh, mainly because the Pulse is self-funded, which makes us really different. Um, everything that we make from the company goes right back into it. It is, uh, you know, we're not venture capital funded at all. You know, we, we don't have any bank loans yet. Um, <laughs> you know, so everything we do is really um, ad hoc need for our customer base. But, you know, as we started growing, we really started kind of creating four really kind of um, pigeonholes and verticals of our company. So, what we really do is kind of break down the barriers across the ecosystem to bridge the fundamental gaps surrounding federal procurement through our consulting. So we offer things like pipeline building, um, proposal consulting, uh, different types of customized um, training. And training is a, is a second vertical of ours that we have on-demand training for where we kind of provide 101 courses. So if you go to our website, you can download, a, a, you can pay for and download a, a two-hour training on Proposal 101 today and really hear our experiences. But we provide that on-demand option as well as customized training options. Um, as I mentioned, we also provide um, our platform that you brought up. So our platform is really what we build the company around. Um, it is an all-encompassing platform where, you know, what I like to say, and I hope no one sues us, is we like to kind of make it the Google for GovCon. That's what we're aiming to create is an aggregator of all of this information um, because it is so spread out. You know, I, I'm the data tracker within the Pulse, and I have 86 different sources that I look at throughout a week. And that's including your fun things like SAM.gov, USA Spending, and then other things you might not think of like the D2D dashboard, Interact. And then, of course, as I know, you know, you harp on all the time, LinkedIn and social media. Those are actually fantastic sources of, of information for us as well. So what we do with our platform is we aggregate all of these things together in about seven different suites of tools to help anyone in a maybe entering the market to an experienced consultant that maybe doesn't have the, you know, $25,000 to buy a subscription to GovWin, or maybe you find that that doesn't work for you. Where really what we do is we aggregate all of this information so that you can take it and really apply it to your, the systems maybe that you've already invested in or to your team to kind of act as a force multiplier. So we basically support anything that is within the BD lifecycle realm. And what we like to tell our clients, either members of our subscription service or clients of our consulting services, what we like to really tell them is if you know, if we if you can dream it, we can try to do it. And that's really the approach that we take because in government contracting, as we all know, it takes kind of flexibility and adaptability as the market is consistently changing and you know a lot of things change a lot of things stay the same but being able to be adaptable in this industry is is really important to us so our service offerings go like that it is but i want to touch on one more thing before the break uh you said members of the subscription service so can people tap into the database uh on a you know monthly basis quarterly absolutely what so we launched our platform right at COVID start. So not the best time to be launching a product, but actually it's been really, you know, it's been a blessing in disguise, but absolutely. So when we launched it, it was just a yearly subscription fee. So we have um, three tiers of membership. We have the groupie, which costs no money. You also don't really get, you don't get any access. Um, so, you know, you're just kind of on our mailing list and you get access to our, our articles. If you go to our website 
Um, and then we have the Insider, which is our second tier level of membership that costs $1,500 a year or $150 a month. So we, we offered month to month. As soon as COVID hit, we're like, all right, we got to pivot. And then we have our third tier um, of membership, which is our, our highest tier, which is the SME membership, where you get a little bit of extra things. You get access to all of our suite of products, our part nine, which is our proprietary database tool, as well as um, consulting services, where you kind of have a one-on-one relationship with Lisa and I, and that costs $600 a month or $5,000 a year. Um, Cause we really are trying, we try to push that year um, so we can form a relationship with you and really get ingrained into your system. Um, but the fun thing about all this is there's no contracts. There's no long-term agreements. Um, if you want to pay month to month and you want out one day, you cancel, you're out. And that flexibility we know is so important to industry and really important to us because you know we want that with our subscriptions too. Right. All right. Thank you. Uh, we're going to take our first break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center. We're going to come back and take a look at one of Amber's, uh, Amber and Lisa's uh, reports right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here today with Amber Hart. If you don't know Amber, look her up on LinkedIn and take a look at the Pulse GovCon. Dot com. Uh, it'll be well worth your time to do so. Uh, Amber, take, uh, t- tell me about the, uh, the report that you guys just uh, sent out. Absolutely. So uh, under our subscription membership that we talked about, we put out these things called special reports um, every quarter. And what we, the report that we like to put out every June at the start of June is our Q4 special report to help our members get a better idea of maybe what the market is looking like as we enter Q4. You know, as someone that has been in this industry for so long, you're always used to write the rhetoric of massive Q4 spending. And, you know, it's going to be a crazy time and it's nuts. Um, You know, truthfully, I feel like government contracting season is, is just all the time. It's nuts now. I don't feel like there is any seasons, Um, but we like to put out this report for our members. Um, it's also available for public purchase. Uh, you can go on our website and buy that for $650. It's a 47-page report that summarizes where we are in quarter four, as, we, as we're approaching quarter four, excuse me, and then what the agency spending looks like. And we break down 22 federal agencies, as well as their trends that we've analyzed since uh, fiscal year 14 to today. And, and that includes uh, the major contractors for each of those four, 14, 24. Tw- uh, 22, yes. But 22. yes, it's all, all a whole bunch yeah. of numbers. So and, we and, <laughs> yes. and, and the contracts. And the contracts, yes. So what the report includes is we do kind of a, a summary of a good, the bad, the ugly, where we kind of just, uh, which we'll go over in a little bit, the high level themes. And then what we look at from there is for each 22 federal agencies, is we look at the top departments and what their spending looks like, their top vehicles and their top vendors. We also analyze their socioeconomic spending. So had they met their socioeconomic goals or not, as well as their purchase card usage. So we look at these things that are important to growth and BD teams when it comes to Q4, where you might be looking at opportunities, but maybe it's also it's also important to understand what federal agencies are going to be needing or spending or, you know, how, how you can spend, how you can get to them, you know, in the next three months. Cool. 
All right. So let, let's um, let's look at a couple of the uh, of the agencies. We were talking yesterday, and um, you brought up one that that you think is really neat, and nobody ever talks about it. The I National know. Science Foundation. I love the National Science Foundation. And I don't feel like they get enough love um, ever, you know. And I think if you've worked with the National Science Foundation, you, you know, you recognize that you know they they just bring a lot to the table. And what's been going on? Um, we don't cover them in this Q4 report just because their spending are, is so not not low, but just as far as the availability of information, where it's more grant work. But I wanted to bring this up to you, you know, when we were talking in our prep because of looking forward and what's going to be happening potentially next year to National Science Foundation. And I don't feel like this is being put out there enough. So right now um, in the Senate, uh, I believe it is coming up for a vote very soon, um, is the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act. And if you've heard of the Endless Frontiers Act, I think was its name before, it's probably had a few different names, but I believe that's its name today. If it's changed in the last 24 hours, please don't yell at me. It is always uh, a moving target. Um, But this act is really going to fundamentally shift the size and capacity of National Science Foundation. And it's really important because I you know, we've seen after 9-11, right, Department of Homeland Security and how they kind of scaled and came together in, in that agency. This is maybe, in my opinion, the first big scale that we're going to see since then. So what's really going to be happening with this bill if it passes, and I think by all means, everyone's pretty much anticipating that this will get passed, is it's going to authorize about $81 billion in total to the National Science Foundation over the next five years, and that will roughly double what uh, their what their current budget is, which is massive. And the really cool thing about this bill is about $32 billion are, of that 81 is going to go to establishing a directorate of technology and innovation. So NSF is going to be standing up a, an entirely new office in the technological space. And that's just, you know, you think about everything that comes to standing up in an office, just on the commercial or, you know, uh, you know, pri- on the public side uh, or private side, you know, you got your back office, so you got your admins, you got your strategy, you got your, you know, you got so many things to make that work. And to me, that's really exciting, but right. How are they going to scale? And I think that's a massive opportunity for government contractors to get in on that level. It's good. Everything, you know, think about every PSC or NAX code under the sun, it will probably be involved in standing up that directorate, right? Um, and then some other cool things that they're doing is 52 billion is going to be going towards the existing NSF activities. And so the grant spending under NSF is much larger than the current discretionary procurement spending that us traditional government contractors are used to. That's going to be getting a massive influx of about 52 billion over the next five years, which provides so much more opportunity. Um, and then the last but not least, you know, they're authorizing their research security office so that I believe they'll be working a lot more with NIST when it comes to cybersecurity. And my gosh, let's talk about a theme that's like massive right now. You know, that's that's another really big area for people that maybe are looking for new veins to tap in the cybersecurity world. So really what the message is, is that NSF is going to need to dramatically scale their communication and vendor outreach to support and su- successfully execute this. And I think that's a massive opportunity that I could not 
go without really pointing out. No, and and I was thrilled that you brought it up because again, you know, um, National Science Foundation, National Endowments for the Art, National Endowments for the Humanities, you know, these are things that are probably only discussed among the few contractors that target it. Absolutely. I mean, when I worked at another small firm, you know, we, uh, my portfolio was to try to get into these kind of semi quasi like, you know, FDIC, NEA, um, you know, NEH, as you mentioned, and then, you know, National Science Foundation and and, um, NCUA. And they are just, they're not, they're smaller, but they're another vein to tap in there. You know, once you get in there, you're in there, you know, it takes some work, but it's really you know, it, it is a it is a small world, right? That's not talked about enough. Where there's definitely a lot of opportunity. Well, there's, yeah, but you 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 pointed out something there that I want to touch on, and and help the small businesses that are listening. It takes time to break in. Yes. So uh, when when you're chasing something like NCUA, um, you know, what what was your personal strategy going in there for your company? Absolutely. So what, what I do is exactly the same concepts we apply to how we do this for the pulse when we consult um, or even build pipelines. I went and found who was buying what I was selling. So at that time at that firm, I had access to a GSA schedule. So I went through and tried to see if anyone, NCUA doesn't have that many buys, um, you know, but like they do have strategic buying times that they do look at. And it's a lot of personnel services. And so what I went and I found, there's only about two contacts that I could find on there. Um, and basically started, I emailed them first, kind of the, said, hey, I found that, you know, you guys are buying what we're selling, you know, in, in different, obviously better language. And and, sent, and said, can I follow up with a phone call? And of course, that's answered with, with a nothing, um, you know. And so I just, you know, you start being persistent. You pick up the phone, you leave a voicemail, you know, you, you eventually you get in contact or you find out, you know, if they're going to be at, you know, vendor outreach events. I eventually found FDIC does a yearly outreach event, you know, with COVID not, you know, I don't believe that they did it the past two years, but they have a really great vendor outreach event that they do once a year. And NCUA was there. I went up to their booth, introduced myself. Um, The person recognized my name, apologized for not answering my emails. It's okay. You know, all of these things and you get into contact and eventually, you know, and this took about six to seven months. I got a phone call being like, Hey, we need 15 people. There's going to be a staffing need can you fill this, you know, and that's when it's time to execute. So really the strategy is always find who's buying what you're selling, be targeted and then be persistent and then be ready, you know, uh, when the time comes. Yeah. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that NCUA has 800 uh, employees on LinkedIn and the science national science foundation is 3000, just over 3000 plus. It's on crazy LinkedIn. out there. Yeah, I mean, all, all of the federal agencies are here, so I'm thrilled to hear that you incorporate that into your research. I would have been surprised had had you not. Oh my gosh, we tell people all the time, as I know you do. I mean, they they are out there, right? They are communicating. It is such a gray area right now for you know federal agencies on social media interaction and what they can and cannot do, where it's kind of the wild wild west that definitely can be taken advantage of, you know, they communicate, they share things. I learn about events and RFIs. And I mean, I believe that Ali out of treasury out of IRS 
is posting market research on there that isn't on beta Sam or on their site. You know, he's like, Hey, I just need to know if a vendor does this real quick. You know, like that's, that happens. That happens a lot. And, you know, we follow those things and it is just, it's the wild, wild west out there, but yeah, they, you know, social media is a, a key critical source for us. Well, it's a good thing you only did the report on 22 agencies because I found 305 different operating divisions of the federal government. On there's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm sure I didn't get them all. There's, there's a lot and it's always changing, right? Always. Yeah, always changing. We're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here with my friend Amber Hart. And again, look her up on LinkedIn. Find her company at the pulsegovcon.com. Don't include the of. Um, so we'll return right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here with Amber Hart of the Pulse of GovCon. Uh, find her at the pulseofgovcon.com and on LinkedIn. Uh, Amber, let's talk about uh, another age. I mean, this one's talked about somewhat more than NSF, but still, it's it's not usually on the top of anybody's list. But maybe that's going to change. The Department of Trans- Transportation. Absolutely, yeah. So DOT has definitely been, um, I believe, getting more active, especially with eFast and and that being utilized and more of the drone and, and UAS types of support. So I feel like it's definitely getting more mainstream. Now, you know, they, they, they got a lot of money to spend. So it's definitely, you know, an active agency. But so far, they only spent 5% of their allocated FY21 discretionary spending. Can you say that again? 5%. 5%. So, so in the next 90 days or so, there's there's going to be a fair amount of money coming out of there. A fair amount of money coming across. Now, there's definitely some money in there that I'm sure has allowances to go until, you know, for the next five years or to next year. Like, that, you know, not all of that money will be lost. At, you know, I'm sure that there are some weird congressional, you know, uh, policies in there. But yeah, no, it's a lot of money still left on the table. And you might be asking, why is that? Well, you know, a lot of what we've heard is, you know, it took until about April, maybe even start of May for a lot of the discretionary dollars to start flowing through to their working funds. Um, You know, I'm not an expert in this. I can't an expert in that congressional movement. I can't really tell you why that's happening, but that's what we have been hearing. And so a lot of money is just now becoming available, not to mention, you know, leadership positions with the new administration ha- has changed out um, workforce depletion, which is now kind of being uh, hopefully brought up again. Um, you know, so there's a lot of reasons for this, but yeah, they're looking at, you know, a lot of money still left on the table at department of transportation. And so one of the things that reports look at, as I mentioned, is we look at the top offices and departments that have been spending money to really give you an idea of, of who's, you know, the most active. And out of the Department of Transportation, it should be no surprise to anyone that, you know, the FAA is the most active <laughs> out of there. They've spent so far $3 billion. I anticipate that completely increasing now that they have money. You know, they have, you know, security checkpoints. I know they just awarded a very large security um, checkpoint bid. You know, they have, they have a lot of work to get done over there. They've been making some awards. So I have a feeling that that's going to jump pretty significantly. 
maritime um, hit just below a little uh, under a billion of spending. And then you have things that Federal Highway Administration, the Office of the Secretary, and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, all kind of around, you know, ranging from about 500 million down to about 50 million. But so, you know, FAA is obviously the most active, um, you know, throughout that entire agency. Sure. But what, you know, I, I, I sent forwarded you an email uh, this morning uh, regarding, uh, I think it the the one I sent. Correct me if I'm wrong. One on hiring, yes. or did I send you the one on? Did I also send you the one on uh, infrastructure spend? No, just the one on hiring. But infrastructure spend is nuts. You know what what could be possibly coming down the pike, right? You look at the money that was put through, um, you know, through the American Rescue Plan Act and the money being proposed for the infrastructure. Um, plan. I know that's currently kind of in limbo. But yeah, I mean, you bring up a really great point that, you know, if that gets passed, Department of Transportation is going to have a whole lot more money on their hands to be spending, uh, you know, going into probably fiscal year 2022, which will be yeah. really interesting for appropriators, you know, um, right now is kind of figuring out how much money do you appropriate because you have all this extra money coming in through different funds. Yeah, and and again, the uh, the infrastructure issue is something that really has to be dealt with in the uh, in the near term. So uh, I don't know if you know this off the top of your head, but does does transportation? I mean, they take care of the interstates and stuff like that, but will they also through grants or other? money oh, yeah. forwarding services help local governments. Absolutely. So they're doing a whole lot more there. They, they've always done a lot of state and local bids. They work very closely with state and local um, organizations through grants, through any type of funding. And yes, I, I fully expect that to increase. You know, even FAA does a lot of grants for, you know, state uh, different, you know, airports and local airports. And I imagine also the, you know, getting more grants for rural development and support as well is going to continue to, to increase. But that's definitely been a, um, a point of, you know, requirements and a point of support within throughout the Department of Transportation has been really working in conjunction with, you know, state and local governments, as, you know, also, you know, not so much on transportation, but on things like autonomous vehicles and safety. And, you know, all of these new fun contraptions we're all coming out with um, are definitely being studied and a strategic approach to how are we going to manage all this with, you know, new types of vehicles and hybrid vehicles and the green and sustainable procurement push we're going through. And, you know, all of these are different initiatives and different things that DOT is thinking about. Cool. Let's take another agency. Sure. How's about that one that uh, Bezos and uh, Elon want to take over? So NASA. They, yeah, NASA. So they still haven't taken over quite yet. Um, but That's NASA, good. different than Department of Transportation, has seen has spent about forty seven percent of their discretionary spending. So a little bit at fifty percent. And this one kind of surprised me because when we look at different federal agencies that I mentioned throughout fiscal year fourteen to today, NASA's typically by this point you know, at, at about like 70% of their spend, them and Department of Energy are typically almost towards their top. This year, they're not, um, which is really interesting, you know, but if you look at the top departments that have spent money, you know, Johnson Space Center is the lead 
with 3 billion, you have things like the Marshall Space Flight Center is about 2.3 billion. And then at the bottom is actually the Kennedy Space Center with about 845 million only being spent. And so I anticipate those things, um, those levels to really jump and increase. But you know, you mentioned Bezos and you mentioned Elon. Um, they are not the top vendors throughout, uh, you know, NASA as of right now. Um, California Institute of Technology um, is one of the largest vendors there with about $1.7 billion being collected so far in FY21. Lockheed Martin takes a very close second. And then you have companies like Boeing, Space Exploration Technologies, and Northrop Grumman, who owns Orbital Science Corporation, kind of rounding out the list of top five. So no Bezos or Elon just yet, but maybe next year. (laughs) We'll see. I'm sure Um, they would love that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So what else you got about, about these, this, this, uh, this thing that put people on the moon? Yeah. So the really interesting about NASA, right. Is everyone, you know, if you think of vehicles, NASA soup, is obviously an extremely popular vehicle. Oh, yeah. um, but NASA Soup is actually their fourth most used um, uh, vehicle so far in this fiscal year. The largest vehicle that is used by NASA right now is actually the PSS schedule out of GSA, where they've spent about $88 million under that vehicle. NASA Rapid 3 is the second largest vehicle with about $56 million and then NASA suit being the fourth. So it's interesting where, you know, na- there's no GSA IT70 on there. So they're definitely using their own, you know, vehicle for, for hardware and software spending, which is good to see. But it's interesting because it, NASA soup was such a popular vehicle. And I know for COVID spending, it was massively used, you know, to see it not as like, you know, top one or top two, I just thought was really interesting. Well, the services there are, are minimal and they have to be tied to the products. Absolutely. So, so NASA is going to be buying a lot of professional services. So that, that part doesn't shock me terribly. Um, Absolutely. It, it would have shocked me if soup wasn't on that top five. Though. Yeah, <laughs> that would have been a problem. Um, and then so another really interesting part about NASA, too, is they haven't met any of their small business or socioeconomic goals, with the exception of their SDB like 8A, 8A goals. That is it. Um, they have not met any of their additional goals so far. So that is also a potential opportunity, I think, for vendors to get in there and maybe say, hey, I'm a hub zone or I'm, you know, they haven't even met their small business goals yet. You know, so I think that's definitely an opportunity as well. Yeah. And if you happen to be local, uh, NASA Goddard has a uh, contractors association that meets monthly. Uh, I don't know if they've been meeting physically monthly, but they used to have uh, monthly luncheons that I heard were quite good. Yeah, they do. So and they, with COVID and with the virtual events, they've actually been really good about hosting. You know, you can find them on Eventbrite. We also provide a service through our platform that reports events every week of what's been announced and what's coming up. NASA has been really good about holding at least you know one or two events a month. Um, to do vendor introductions or kind of industry days or do presentations on how to do business with this certain, you know, uh, flight center. So that they've been doing really good with that. And I would say their OSTABU is, you know, their Office of Small Business Programs is what they call it there, has done a really great job kind of interacting throughout the COVID pandemic time, which has been really nice to see. 
Cool. We're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. We'll wrap up with Amber right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here today with Amber Hart of the Pulse of GovCon. You can find Amber on LinkedIn, H-A-R-T, not H-E-A-R-T. And you can find the Pulse of GovCon at thepulsegovcon.com, no of. So I suggest you, you do both. Um, so let's wrap up with, uh, with two more agencies, if you will. Uh, let's talk about our buddies at HHS. Yeah, so it's not like they've had any you know, shortage of things to do there, but you know, you'd be surprised, <laughs> surprised to learn that HHS has only spent about 19% of their allocated discretionary spending so far. And that's because of a lot of different reasons. They obviously had a, has, have had a massive influx with the CARES Act and with the money that came through in the December 2020 Emergency Act. You know, HHS hasn't been at a loss for money, you know, if you will. Um, so, you know, they, that, this number might be a little skewed just because of the way that the money has kind of been broken out. Um, and then you also might be being, saying, you know, what, what about all the vaccines? And what you would be surprised to know um, is that a lot of the vaccine spending actually went through Army um, or the Air Force to utilize their OT, um, OTA authorities as well. So a lot of that money didn't actually come out of HHS's budget. So if you're, if you're like, oh, Amber, you're crazy. They spent way more money than that. I'm sure they have, but in different avenues out of different funds. But as far as their discretionary spending goes out of FY21, they've only spent 19% of their allocated spending. And, you know, obviously for offices, the top one is the CDC, uh, you know, for what's been going on, um, which has seen about $5 billion worth in spending. NIH has seen about $3 billion. CMS about $2.5 billion. And then you have the Assistant Secretary Preparedness and Response, ASPR, with $22.2 billion. And then Administration for Children and Families, ACF, about $2 billion, which has obviously been dealing with their own types of uh, needs with DHS and with the border and with immigration as well. So definitely spending, I, I, I anticipate that increasing. But as I mentioned, those numbers, especially at HHS, might be a tad bit skewed because of the additional funding for the pandemic. Okay. So let's, let's talk a little bit about who's, who's taking the money as contractors. Sure. So really it, it, it is the McKesson specialty distribution LLC. They have, I believe been responsible for distributing and transporting a lot of these uh, vaccines. And so it's been about 1.4 billion have, has gone to them. Um, Merrick, Sharp, and Dome Corp, about $1 billion. And then Rapid Deployment, Inc., with about six, um, $618 million as the top three vendors. And, um, and mm -hmm. stop, stop there for a second. Those wouldn't translate into a non-COVID year. Is that correct? No, I don't believe so. Um, yeah. But I have to go back and check. But no, I don't believe so. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. And then you have Pfizer and uh, GlaxoSmithKline filling out the rest with about 50, uh, 562 million and 553 million to kind of close it out. Okay. So uh, a different kind of year for HHS as far as contractors go. Absolutely. And then, you know, we look uh, some other interesting point is that HHS has not met any of their small business goals so far, again, except for their SDB or 8A goals. Okay. What about the uh, the vehicles they prefer? 
So the top vehicle for them is actually a GSA mass schedule at about 914 million. Which not, is, not CIOCS. Nope, that is actually at the bottom. So their fifth most used vehicle is actually CIO SP3 with about 316 million. Um, okay. In fact, the top three vehicles that are used by HHS the most are GSA vehicles. Okay, but you know, it's weird because SP3 is a services vehicle. Yes. So they're using the schedules rather than CS, which is their product vehicle. To, exactly, and uh, IT70 is their second most used at 541 million. Well, let's whack them upside the head with a beanbag or something. Yeah, it's a it's an odd thing, right? It's it's an odd uh, spin when it comes to using your own internal vehicles first, but it just shows about accessibility, right? And GSA schedules are by far the most accessible. Yeah. So CMS is uh, slightly different on that. Is Spark still a popular vehicle there? Yes. Spark is definitely their fourth most used vehicle with about 324 million. So it's definitely still getting some usage. Yeah. And, and that's, that's a CMS only vehicle. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. What, what else do they use at, at CMS? Cause they, they actually spend a fair amount of money. They do. Um, so I'd have to go back and look. I don't have the data right in front of me, but CMS really uses their own specific vehicles, especially with grant usage and things yeah. like that. I know CMS has a um, cybersecurity IDIQ that they utilize only global distribution support as well. Um, so I, I'd, CMS really uses their own internal vehicles and tracking those is definitely a different bear than HHS in general. Cool. Let's move on to our final agency, which is the Department of Homeland Security. Yeah, so Department of Homeland, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Homeland Security has spent about 18% of their allocated discretionary spending. I know. Um, And the top offices and departments for them have been the Coast Guard with 1.9 billion, um, Office of Procurement Operations, which includes S&T, at about 1.8 billion. Um, Customs and Border Patrol has seen about 1.5 billion being spent. Transportation Security Administration, you know, TSA has seen about 1 billion. And then FEMA has seen about 959 million. But I imagine as we kind of enter hurricane season and all that fun stuff that we're gonna see that jump for sure. Yeah, and there's not gonna be any shortage of hurricanes. No, or other disasters, right? Right. Yeah, I shouldn't limit it to the hurricanes, but um, so contractors. Yep. So top contractors typically have stayed kind of the same throughout DHS, truthfully, over the past few few years. Eastern Shipbuilding Group um, is about $389 They are typically always on the top five list. CSRA with about $313 who I believe was recently acquired, and their name is escaping me. That's okay. Um, and then Lighthouse with about 303 million, Triple Canopy with 229 million, and then Swarovski, who was acquired by Lockheed with about 222 million as well. Okay. So lots of flight, transportation, distribution, logistics, um, really taking over the top vendors there. Small biz spending? 
Small business spending. So they have actually met all of their socioeconomic goals um, at a DHS. So that was really nice to see as well. And then, you know, with their vehicles, uh, the GSA mass schedule with about 944 million. So another top one. IT70 being the second one with uh, $384 million. And then Eagle being the third largest, about $300 million. And with Eagle, uh, we, you know, I was on a call for um, another company doing a presentation on DHS. And uh, Soraya Carrera was on that call. And she actually was talking about Eagle and their plans for that vehicle and how they plan to turn that into more of a portfolio office. And then take those requirements and kind of split them out over different vehicles. So I think that's something to look for as well. Okay. Cool. And then the last two are is actually GSA Alliant 2 and the original, because I believe they still had task orders coming over. So it's funny to see that, you know, GSA takes over most of their vehicle usage there. Well, yeah, I mean, um, well, yes and no. Um <laughs> Yeah, that's not my response on on everything where GSA is pretty predominant. It's not so surprising. Yeah, I mean they're 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 trying real hard. Um, so um, so give me some wrap up thoughts here. Um, huh. What do, what do you see for the end of of FY twenty one overall? So typically, um, the quarter quarter four is really popular with sole source bridges, JNAs, you know, to get the money out out of there. Um, but something that's really important to note is we also look at the Q4 over the past, you know, as I mentioned, fiscal year 14 to today. And what I did was I looked at it without, um, by taking out inflation um, and, and remove that. And I'm trying to find the number. And so on average with inflation in, in incorporated, the federal government spends about $165.5 billion every quarter for but when you remove inflation, it's actually only $63.6 billion spent every year. And if you look at the graph on our article, you'll see it's pretty stagnant. Um, there's really no, if you look at it with inflation, you know, it's a, it's a complete increase up. Um, take out inflation, it is really just kind of a straight, straight line. Um, so, you know, the really a lot of the takeaways for quarter four spending to us is pursue it. There's always some needs, you know, but know where to find it and know where to send people, make it easy for them, but mm-hmm. don't put all your eggs in one basket when it comes to quarter four is really right. our lesson there. It's kind of like new year's, you know, where it gets all built up and everyone's all excited. Then, it, you know, it's not always, it's never as great as you build it up to be in your, in your head. Yep. Amber Hart, thank you so much. You can find the report that we've been talking about in uh, or at the pulsegovcon.com. Uh, Amber, again, thanks for coming. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it was fun. Uh, this is not my day job. I do advise companies on all aspects of marketing to the government. I also tell companies, uh, uh, my clients, about the best sources of information. It's one of the reasons Amber is here. Um, so if you want to talk about LinkedIn, especially leveraging LinkedIn at end of FY, drop me a line at markamtower at gmail.com. And thanks for listening to Amtower Off Center. You've been listening to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Tune in Mondays at noon or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. 